trying to time it just right, and I'm, never, I'm always a little behind, but um, one of these weeks will be really dramatic, and I'll be here right when it ends, but good morning, and uh, would you open up your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3 is page 46 in the Blue Pewback Bible, if you want to follow along with us there. I always encourage you to have the word open in front of you on the phone, or uh, for you to see it, that what we do here is not just say my thoughts that came up throughout the week, but what we see and proclaim and trust in is God's word each and every week. Well, John Calvin, a name many of you might be familiar with or at least heard of, he was a 16th century reformer, pastor, author. He's probably most well known for this massive work that he called Institutes of the Christian Religion. It was kind of his whole life's work in one piece. And the first line of Institutes is probably the most famous. The quotes can be on the screen. Nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. So it's kind of a two-part question. Who is God? Who am I? And the exploration of life and meaning and purpose and why do you wake up in the morning kind of rests on your answer to those two questions. Um, they're identity questions, right? Like they're, they're questions that everybody answers. Uh, who, who is God? How did you come to believe what you believe about God? What outside influences formed you or shape you in your belief of God? Even if your belief is no God, what formed that? What shaped that? That's an answer to the question, how can you trust those influences? It's a good question. And then how do you see yourself? Who am I? So if I, and I won't do this, if I were to randomly just look around and call somebody out and bring them up here and give you the mic and just say, hey, tell everybody about yourself. Where would you go first? Think about in your mind, if you were the one who up here and you were just to tell a group, room full of people, tell us about yourself, how do you start that? Most probably go the individual answer route, right? You tell them, I'm an engineer, I'm a teacher, I'm a student, I'm a stay-at-home mom, kind of what you do. You might say there, there's a definitive hobby that you love to do, that you defines you, that you are passionate about. You, you might Talk about a role that you have. I'm a husband, I'm, I'm a mother, I'm a son, I'm a sister. That's one way to kind of answer the identity question. You might also answer it in relation to a group of people, okay? Um, I'm Korean, I'm, I'm Latin American, I'm white. You might say, I'm from New Jersey. You might say, I am not from New Jersey, like, I feel like people, my wife included, like, just very want to say that early on. I live here, but I'm not from here. You might define yourself amongst a generation. I'm a millennial. I'm a Gen Xer. I'm a boomer. And then there's these private identity thoughts that no one would probably ever share up here. Maybe about your emotional life. At least we wouldn't share initially. I'm successful. I'm a failure. I'm attractive, I'm ugly, I'm a people person, I'm a loner, private identity thoughts that we have about ourselves. Um, all of us will be different, um, answers will be different, but at the root of 
all, we're, we're the same in that we desire to see ourselves and define ourselves a certain way. All people want a certain identity. Um, the question is, where do you look to gain it? What's the foundation? Do you look from within yourself or from outside of yourself? Um, there is the kind of common thought of the day and the common encouragement of the day from the world is find your own truth from within yourself. Find your own truth. Find your own identity. You find it from within. Don't let anybody outside define who you are. Um, what I just kind of lovingly try to encourage people, especially I'd say younger people who are most drawn by that line of thinking, is that that's not possible. Nobody can truly find their identity from within themselves. It's a facade. Because every thought you have about yourself has been formed or influenced by something outside of you. And we all want to see ourselves based upon what we think other people, how we want other people to see us. So we observe, we think, we're formed, we're shaped, we're influenced, and based on that we decide. So there is no real, true, find your inner self. But there are massive identity issues in our world today. And not just for younger people. And we'll see that in our text today as well. So for all the complexity about identity, all the kind of shifting goalposts of who you should be or who you want to be or who you don't want to be, um, we are just so desperate, I think more now than ever, to have something help us clear the fog of our identity, of our mission in life, of who is God and who am I. Enter Exodus chapter 3. Because we're going to see both questions in the text. And by God's grace, we'll discover both answers. So we would do well to dial in this morning. We are going to read all of Exodus 3 today. But we will start with just the first six verses. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Four things we're going to see in chapter 3 this morning. Number one, God's revelation. God's revelation. When people think about the book of Exodus, this is generally the starting point in their minds. Moses and the burning bush. Right? And from here until the actual crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 14, it is nonstop action in Exodus. Right? It's like that part of the movie where like, all the setup is done, all the resolution is going to happen at the end, but that middle jam-packed where you can just sit back, eat your popcorn, and go, let's go. All right? like, that's this section of Exodus. This kicks it off. Um, and we have talked uh, about how the first couple chapters of Exodus covers a vast amount of time multiple generations, hundreds of years. But now, starting in chapter 3, all the way to the end, Exodus 40, covers one year. Some of you can attest, for better or for worse, a lot can happen in a year. 
Well, for Moses and for the nation of Israel, a lot is going to happen in a year. And like most big years, you can't really see it coming. Like most big years, it starts like any other normal year and normal day. As a reminder, Moses is living in the land of Midian. He fled Egypt 40 years prior. He is now living as a Midianite. He has a wife. They have children. He is fully assimilated into this culture, and he is working for his father-in-law. His father-in-law named Jethro. Uh, In chapter 2, his father-in-law was named Ruel. There could be a few reasons for this, but it's not uncommon to be referred to with different names, just like it's not uncommon now. You have a first name, you have last name, you have formal name, common name, so I don't think we need to get too caught up there. Uh, But either way, Moses Moses is working for his father-in-law. Maybe by choice, probably not by choice. Um, And he is a shepherd, and he is going to be called, his father-in-law will be called Jethro the rest of the book. And Moses is keeping his flock, shepherding sheep, and he goes out on a business trip. He goes with the sheep to the west side of the wilderness, to the mountain of Horeb, the mountain of God. Once again, right now, It's being called a different name than what you probably know it more famously as. The mountain will later be called Mount Sinai, which will feature prominently throughout this book. But Moses is minding his own business, keeping his flock, when behold, he looks and there's a bush on fire. And even that, I don't think, totally catches Moses' attention because he is a shepherd in the desert. I just, I'm going to go on a limb and say it's not uncommon to see a bush on fire. But what does catch his attention? It's on fire, but it's not burning. It's not being consumed So Moses says in the middle of the desert to nobody in particular, I will turn and see this great sight, why it's not burning. I have to imagine in this line of work, Moses just talks to himself a lot, like hanging around sheep all day, and as a fellow person who talks to myself a lot, I get it, all right? Anyone else? No? Okay, cool. Um, Well, he thought a bush on fire that is not being burned is a great sight, Imagine what he thinks when a voice starts coming out of it. Moses, Moses. Question here, if you're studying your Bible closely, who is speaking here? Not maybe as obvious as you might think. Verse 2, it tells us an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. I think our most common reading, we start to think, okay, this is an angel like a Michael, like a Gabriel. We see elsewhere in the Bible who speaks on behalf of of God, but not so fast, because in verse 4, it says, when the Lord saw that he turned, God called out to him. So the angel of the Lord, in this case, and it happens several times in the Old Testament especially, is not an angel on behalf of the Lord, but it's an angel that is a manifestation of God himself. And you say, okay, what, that's a small detail, what's the difference kind of a big difference. You see, one is not God. One is God. One is creation. One is creator. And it appears to be that this is God. Uh, Theological word for it is called a theophany. It's a God appearance. And God, as we know it, has no body. He has no form. But he appears to multiple people many times throughout the Old Testament. And the appearance is a theophany. It's a God appearance. 
you will find commentators kind of wonder aloud if, if this in Exodus chapter 3 was Christ pre-incarnate. And God says, do not come near. Moses, Moses, hold up. Don't come near. Take off your sandals. The place that you are standing is holy ground. And then remember this, tuck this in the back of your mind for later. God says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But what I love about the burning bush, the famous burning bush, is that God showed who he was before he spoke about who he was. God showed him, and then God told him. And Exodus 3, verse 5, is the first time in the Bible the word holy is attached and associated with God. Holy, it's a church word, right? You say it, you sing it a lot. Holy means set apart. It means distinct from. It means God is set apart from his creation. For he is God, and there is no other. And Moses, in line with every other encounter somebody has with God, hides in fear. Here's just what is worth highlighting at this point. God initiated this encounter. God chose to reveal himself. This is God's revelation. There is no indication that Moses was looking out for, seeking out for, crying out to God. There's no indication that he was desiring for God to reveal himself. I think he was kind of rested into his own um, reality that now he's a Midianite. That now he's just trying to work, man. Like it's just any other day. Minding his own business. That Moses was not laying in bed at night thinking about meaning. He wasn't thinking about purpose. He wasn't thinking about the big questions of life. He was just living, man. Like, he's got a family he's got to support. He's got a father-in-law he's got to keep happy at work. He's got to provide for his family. The man is grinding. And I think it's telling that one never plans an initial encounter with God. You know why? Because we're not looking and I find this in my preaching, and I think I'm in my own little world sometimes, where I'll often say, like, hey, if you're just laying in bed at night and staring at the ceiling and you're struggling with meaning and brokenness, maybe that happens occasionally. You know what I think happens most time with unbelievers? They're sleeping just fine. Like, they're not thinking about these things. They got work the next day. They're tired. They're binge-watching Netflix on their way to sleep. They're not thinking about these things working for the weekend, making a living. And throughout scripture, you find that God arranges life in such a way where he causes people to look in his direction. He draws them near to himself. And so when I pray for unbelieving people in my life, family, and friends, my prayer is like, God, direct their gaze at you because they're not looking. Whatever it takes. If you can use me, use me, but draw them to yourself. We don't discover God. He, by his grace, chooses to reveal himself. That's number one. Let's keep going. Exodus 7 through 13. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, 
And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my, bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Verse 13, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Number two, after God's revelation, we see Moses' questions. After revealing himself, God tells Moses why he is revealing himself. He is doing something big. Moses, I'm doing something big here, and I want you to play a part. Notice the connection to the final verses of chapter 2 that we saw last week. God is now telling Moses, I have seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them. And here's the kicker. Moses, I'm going to use you to do it. I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. And that leads to big existential question number one for Moses. Who am I? Who am I that I should go do this? It's a timeless question. And this is what happens when a person who is struggling with their identity confronts the true and living God. Who am I to go do that? Who am I that you came to me? Who am I to help others in that way? Who am I? And Moses, this is important, Moses was not asking this question as a youth who was just starting to come of age. Like we often, you know, associate people with identity issues are students, right? They're young adults. They're people who are trying to figure their life out. And not saying that's not true, but it's not only true for students and younger people. Moses was 80 years old. And in the first two chapters, we learned at least this much about Moses. The man was born a Hebrew. He was raised an Egyptian, and he's now living as a Midianite. You know what I call that? Identity issues. And we don't know at what age Moses was given up by his birth mother to the Egyptian royal family, but we know he was weaned, he was done nursing. And in that time, it's not uncommon, that probably would have been age four, age five, age six, where he left his Hebrew family and went now to be raised as an Egyptian. Which is enough time to set a foundation in his little mind and heart of who God is. Did you notice... I told you to tuck it in the back of your mind. You notice how God started when he revealed himself? He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac and Jacob. It's interesting, isn't it? As if Moses will remember who the God of his father was. The God who taught him, at the, the father who taught him at, at a young age about who God is. Moses, at age 80, can remember to what happened between birth and age 5. Isn't that interesting? 
fathers with younger children, just listen to me real quick. It is never too early to start teaching your kids about who God is. Do not teach your kids just to be nice. Don't just teach them to say please and thank you and to have good manners. Teach them about God. Teach them about who he is. Teach them the doctrine of God. They will start to understand. They will remember. That will set a foundation. They will learn to be nice after they learn about who God is and his plan for their life. Teach them God. Give them God. If I know anything about our children's director, Megan, she loves fielding questions from parents about how, what are good resources I can have to do devos with my kids, things that they can understand, things that I can help me help them. That is her number one favorite question, is to equip and help parents to raise their kids in the truth of the Lord. Use her. Ask her. This question Moses asks, who am I, tells us there are two ways to get your identity wrong. Number one is to think so low of yourself that God can never love you or accept you. Not the things you've done. I understand this could be good news for everyone else, but everyone else must not have my story because everyone else is smiling around here and I'm not smiling. If he knows everything about us, we feel like that's a deal breaker. That we cannot be truly loved if we're going to be truly known. That our inner reality in our life makes us unlovable. It's the first way to get it wrong. The second way is to think so highly of yourself that you don't think you need God. I'm really just doing just fine. And I don't mean to be rude, but I kind of look around. This feels a little bit like a crutch to me. It feels a little bit like you, it's a coping mechanism for life that you need a God who's going to help you and be there for you. And my life's not perfect, but I'm, I'm getting by just fine. The second way to get identity wrong. Who am I? I love how God answers this question because it's kind of a non-answer. He doesn't really directly answer. He doesn't go, this is what he does not do. He does not go, hey Moses, don't, can't you see? You're perfect for this. Moses, you were born a Hebrew, so you understand their suffering. You were raised an Egyptian, so you know the inner workings of a royal family. You are shepherding as a Midianite, so now you know the lay of the land outside of Egypt to lead the people out. Moses, you're perfect for this. Is that what God says? No. He doesn't even talk about Moses. He says, I will be with you, and I am sending you. And when you return to this mountain, you and the people in Israel will serve and worship me. What makes Moses special is not his gift set. It's that he was chosen by God, and God will be with him. There's a famous phrase, if you've been around church circles, you've for sure heard this hundreds of times, but God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. And Moses is the prime example of this. Moses hears this first question. Here's the answer to his first question of who am I, but he's not convinced. God's answer of, hey, I will be with you, leads to next question number two. Okay, who are you? 
But pay attention. He tries to act like it's the people of Israel who are going to want to know. Hey, God, what is your name? So, you know, if they ask, I can tell them. Like, this must be with a sarcastic phrase. Hey, I'm asking for a friend. Start it. God, what's your name? Just asking for a friend. And what makes this significant, I don't think I picked up on before studying for this sermon, is that God already told Moses who he was. God, Moses, I'm the God of your father, of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses heard that. But now Moses was given his commission, and so now he really wants to make sure. Who am I? Who is God? The timeless two questions that all of life and meaning rests upon. And here they are in your Bible, a few verses apart. Let's see what God says now. Exodus 3, 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. I might have told you this before, but Exodus 3.14 is my favorite verse in the Bible. And I struggle to even preach it. Because it is so significant. It's so deep that like, I feel like what meager thing I'm about to do will not do it justice. Like I was literally sitting at my computer, and you know Microsoft Word, when like you're just sitting for the next thing to write, and that thing's just mocking you, that cursor, right? It's just blank, and I literally like physically could not type. Like I start feeling ill, but I also was sick this week, so I don't know. That might have been a few different things. But one commentator wrote, and I so resonated with this, he said, Moses spent the rest of his life trying to figure out this answer. Moses was looking for a name. And he knew what the culture of Egypt was like, that there are a lot of gods in and around Egypt, a lot of names to choose from. And it's unclear whether the nation of Israel really managed to stay faithful to the one true God. In fact, I think there's enough evidence to say at the very least they had grown distant from him. They're immersed in a polytheistic, animistic culture within Egypt. And so Moses is like, hey, just give me a name. This will make it easier. All the while we know Moses wants a name. He's still undecided whether he's going to go ahead and do this. And so before God gives Moses a name, and there are many titles in the Bible that describe God. There are many names, even the book of Genesis, that are used for God. Even Danny in his prayer started with a lot of the names of God. Good names. But before he gave Moses a name, he wanted to make it very clear that Moses, before any names existed, I am. I'm the God who is, period. Okay, is what? No, 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 Moses. Before that, I'm the God who is. I am who I am. That one was for Moses. And then he says, oh, and you can go tell Israel. Tell them I am sent you. The word here in the Hebrew, it's the word that we translate Yahweh, it's actually just four consonant letters in the original Hebrew, Y-H-W-H, because the original Hebrew did not have vowels. But in your Bible, in most translations, certainly if you have an ESV translation, 
you see it translated as LORD in all caps. So anytime in the Old Testament that you see LORD in all caps, that is the I AM. That is Yahweh. And God wanted Moses, and by extension, all of his chosen people to fully understand that we make much of him and we glorify him, not because he's just the best option out there of a bunch of different gods, but before anything was, he is. And I was tempted and I chickened out, but for have us to all just spend two minutes in silence to see, just sit down and think about that. It's like, just let it sit on you, the God who is the great I am. He never had a beginning. He will never have an end. He doesn't age or get old. He does, he's not dependent on anything. He's overpowered by nothing. He just consistently and constantly is. Who is God? He's the great I am. Let's start there. And the great I am has come to deliver his people. It's the name before all names. And this persists throughout the Old Testament. You see that Lord in all caps throughout the Old Testament until we get a new name. In John chapter 8, Jesus was teaching on various things with authority as he always does. And the Pharisees of the day hated him. And, and the Jewish ruling class hated him. And, and, and then Jesus says this one thing in particular. He says in John chapter 8, whoever keeps my word will never see death. And the Pharisees had enough. They had enough of him, enough of this. And they finally ask him, hey, even Abraham is dead. So who do you think you are? Are you greater than our father Abraham? It's this, it's this, it's, wow, wow, hello. It's as if he is asking who are you? What's your name? And Jesus answered in John 8, 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And there, more than any other reference in the Bible, we see Jesus clearly aligning himself with God as God. The name before all names has now been revealed to be the name above all names, and his name is Jesus. And this will actually be the charge the Jews will use to crucify him, blasphemy, punishable by death, and that death will atone for the sins of all those who would trust their life to him by repenting of their sin and placing their faith in the name of Jesus, the great I Am. And just as Jesus is the name above all names, he's also the only way to the Father. And salvation is found only in Jesus, faith alone, in Christ alone. And so our foundational identity is found in God's identity. The two are linked. Who am I? Look to the great I am. And in Christ, God looks at us and sees his son. Let's finish the chapter. One step left. Exodus 3, 15 to the end. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. 
This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Number four, Moses' mission. God repeats nearly word for word his mission for Moses, but now he gives much more detail as well of how it will happen, what it will look like, and how victory will come to be had. And these verses right here show the sovereign control of God. He's not hoping something's going to happen. He's not saying, Moses, here's the game plan. Not sure how it's going to work out. Let's just go in there and hope for the best. Not what God says. With his life, with my life, with your life. He is in sovereign control. Nothing happens outside of his command. And he gives Moses this kind of play-by-play of what's coming. This is like a movie trailer that gives away the ending in the trailer, right? He goes, you're going to go in. The elders of Israel will listen to you, but the king of Egypt will not let you go until he is compelled to, and I will compel him. And I'll stretch out my hand and strike Egyptian, Egypt with many wonders, and then finally he will let you go. And when you have 1.5 million people with you, you're not even going to go empty-handed, The women in your midst will plunder the Egyptians. And here's the best part. They're not even going to steal from them. They won't destroy them. They won't even be devious about it. They're going to go to their neighbor and ask for silver and gold and clothing. And the Egyptians will be so struck by the wonders of God, so overpowered, they're going to give it to you. And you're just going to be layering up your kids because you won't even be able to hold it all. All right, you're going to have, they'll be wearing six layers in the desert of silver and gold chains and clothes just to carry it all. Like, did any of, anybody else read this and go, what? How did I miss this part of Exodus? The women in your midst are going to go plunder the Egyptians, and you will not leave empty-handed. So here's how I want to finish it up. Give me a couple minutes to connect the dots here. Exodus chapter 3 shows us that identity and mission are always linked. Who you are is intimately connected to what you do. Because who God is is intimately connected with what God has done, is doing, and will do. It's identity and mission. 
And God, in his sovereign kindness and design, chooses to use men and women to bring about his purposes. Did God need Moses here? It's not a trick question. The answer is no. Did he need Moses to go in and do everything he's about to do? No. But he chooses to deploy his people to play a part. Did God need the women of Israel to go to their neighbors and ask for jewelry and clothes in order to give Israel wealth? The answer, no. But he chooses to use the women of Israel to play a part. And this has been and always will be God's design in creation. To save people, to deliver people, and then use them to play a part in the building and expanding of his kingdom. To save them for the purpose of worship and service. When Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, and in those two events, we know salvation was accomplished for those who believe in him. Does he just say, show's over? Game over? It's done? It's the end? Let's go? No. He commissions his people. Listen to this. These words of Jesus to his disciples with Exodus 3 in mind. It's going to be on the screen. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, when God saves you, that's not the end of your story. Just as the wedding day is only the beginning of a marriage, so the day of salvation is just the beginning of your mission. You are now deployed to know Christ and make him known. To make disciples of all nations. And everyone plays a part. This is what a church is. It's not just a Sunday service, even though the Sunday service is important. It's not just a building, even though a building is important. It's people. Binding together to know Christ and make him known. To play a part in what God is doing right now. How do we do that? How do we go out on mission? Um, we play a part in God's big story in small ways. But impactful ways. We join a covenant community of members. We say, we take vows to one another. I'm in. And I'm here and let's go. And we gather in worship, and we connect in community, and we join in service, and together we go on mission. And we go in the present. God has called you to be part of a church in 2020, not to hearken back to some past time when churches were so easy and great and didn't have all these issues, because we're not there. And, and we're not hoping for some day in the future of, well, I hope church turns into this, and I hope we can start doing things like that. Because you know what? We're not there. You know where we are? Right here. And God's called you to play a part right here and right now. And so I finish by just asking, do you see your identity as being a child of God, being intimately connected with your mission to join the church to make disciples. 
This is what it is to see yourself in God's image. This is what it is to stand before the Holy One and look to the great I am. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you how you provide clear answers to life's biggest questions. Father, we thank you that we who are made in your image have an opportunity to worship and serve you, Lord, because of the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we lament the tragedy of a world that chooses to make God in their own image. And so, Father, protect us from defining you on our terms. Protect us from deciding how we live our lives because of what's right in our own eyes. Lord, bestow your grace upon us so that we might surrender our identity to you, the great I am. Father, show us that you save us in order to send us. Father, I pray that everyone's encouraged to see their role, to see their part, Lord, that if everything they do in this life, the most important thing they will do is play a part in making disciples. Father, lead us, keep us humble, and keep us confident in who you are, Lord. And we pray that we might make much of, in, of your name in such a way that makes a mighty impact in the place and time that you have called us to. In your name we pray. Amen. Please stand and join us in worship.